Well, I am so thankful for all of you that are here and all of you that are hearing uh, me right now. And let me just take a moment to say that when I say thank you for those of you that are hearing me, I don't just mean those of you that are going to be watching uh, this teaching on a video at one of our three locations. Um, As you know, we put our teachings on the web, and people can watch them on the internet, they can watch them on their computers, they can watch them on their smartphones, and a lot of people do that. In fact, um, we average over 5,000 times a week someone listening to or watching one of the teachings of uh, this church, which means that we have more parishioners than we have parishioners. And I'm excited about that and encourage all of you that do so to start tithing as quickly (laughs) as possible. And if you are one of those people around the world that listen to us, welcome. And let me just say that um, we do have three campuses at the Hills. Uh, Typically, I'm at the North Richland Hills campus, especially this year because we've been out of our auditorium as it's being remodeled and we have two different venues now. And so I have felt a need to be here a lot, but we have a campus in South Lake, and I will be there uh, on Sunday, and then we have a campus in West Fort Worth that I will be at in a few weeks, and I take that very seriously. I really want you to understand how humbled I am that thousands and thousands of people every week would want to hear the Word of God taught in this place by me or by someone else. Years ago when I came to this church, I promised our leaders I would never get up on a weekend and just wing it. And I meant that, and I hope they feel like I've kept that promise. Preaching ministry is unique in this way. It's always there. When you walk to your car after a long day of preaching on Sunday, before you get to your car, you're thinking about the next weekend and the next teaching. When we have three-day weekends like we did this past week, that might mean a four-day week for someone else, but Sunday's coming in seven days for a preacher, regardless of whether or not the rest of the world takes a day off. And so typically when we have a three-day weekend, I come to the office some, and I did this past week, and I've got to tell you, I love it. (laughs) I love coming to the office when nobody is here. I can get more done in two hours than I typically can in an entire day. And I was reflecting on this last Monday in my office, and it just hit me. Ministry is easy as long as you don't have to deal with people. (laughs) It's people that make ministry so hard. Of course, I guess that's like a doctor saying, you know, I would love medicine if it wasn't for all those sick folks. If you never deal with people, you might think you're doing ministry for Jesus, but you're not doing ministry like Jesus. It's something other than discipleship if it's not another discipleship. 
And with those words, I want to launch into a study that we'll be in for a good part of our summer. And our key text is going to be in John 13. It's the night before Jesus is about to be murdered. And he knows he is about to be murdered. So he gathers those closest to him in an upper room for a meal. And he does an amazing, startling thing. He takes off his outer garments, he wraps himself in a towel, and he starts to wash their feet. An act so demeaning that some of them even want to refuse and not let him. But he insists, and he washes everybody's feet. And then he says something that is going to become the distinguishing foundation of his movement. In fact, if we don't get this, we don't get what Jesus is trying to accomplish. It's just two verses. It's just two sentences. And everything hinges on these words. Verse 34 and 5. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You're thinking, Rick, can you do a whole summer of sermons on those two verses? We're going to stop before I'm through. And here's why. Because you must get serious about anothering if you're serious about Jesus. It's that simple. Now, we've all heard the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's hard enough, but Jesus takes it up a notch here. He he gives what I'm going to call the platinum rule. Do unto others as I have done unto you. Now, implicit in that is the assumption that discipleship requires community. You can't do Jesus by yourself. That's one reason why a mission statement of our church is that we're trying to grow followers of Jesus, people that look like, think like, talk like, act like Jesus, and we're doing it through worship and community and service. And the reason community is so important, the reason we stress things like small groups and service is because Jesus taught us that following him is a corporate undertaking. And by the way, he did not pull a bait and switch. He didn't bring you into the movement and then say, oh yes, you've got to do it with other people. Look with me, for example, at 1 John three eleven. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. You should love one another. This was the first moment in Christ. This was the first thing you were taught when you accepted Christ. From the beginning, Jesus says, if you're going to be a part of what I'm trying to do in the world, here is 101. Love one another. He's not just offering another path. He's offering an another path. Now, this is why 
That phrase, one another, is going to be found over 90 times in the New Testament. Over 35 different verbs are going to be used with that little phrase. Serve one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. And the list just goes on and on and on. You cannot take anothering lightly if Jesus carries any weight in your life. And so, in this first teaching, I want us just to unpack those two critical, foundational words of Jesus. What does it mean to love one another? What is this another love? That he insists on. First thing. It's non-negotiable. A new command. I give you. Love one another. And isn't it interesting. We don't typically think of Jesus giving commands. Commands are for legalists. Commands are for. Religious people. I follow Jesus. Well, now, please understand, Jesus came with more than commands, but he certainly didn't come with less. He did not say, a new suggestion I give to you. A new idea I've got I want to try on you guys. Hey, here's a new life possibility some of you might want to explore. Again, this has been taught from the start if you were taught Jesus well. 2 John 6, love means doing what God has commanded us. And he has commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. I have a good friend who preaches in Memphis, Tennessee named Josh Ross. And I heard him in a teaching say that there was a man in his church after one of his sermons where he called on uh, a certain kind of bigotry to be addressed who came up to him and said, well, I just don't think I will ever love those people. And Josh had a brilliant response. He said, have you been baptized? He said, yes. Josh says, well, then you can't talk like that. (laughs) That's a good answer. Have you been baptized? Did you go public? That Jesus is your Lord. Then you don't get to have sex however you want to have it. Or spend your money however you want to spend it. Or love whoever you feel like loving. If you've picked Jesus to be your Lord. You don't get to pick which of his orders you're going to obey. And you can't really follow any command of Jesus if you don't. Follow the another command. And so Paul could say in Romans 13, do not owe people anything except always owe love to each other. Because the person who loves others has obeyed all the law. The law says you must not be guilty of adultery. You must not murder anyone. You must not steal. You must not want to take your neighbor's things. All these commands and all others are really Only one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the universal moral 
absolute. It is always right to love. It is always wrong not to love. And if you are wrong on love, you can't be right with God. I like how 1 John 4.21 reads from the message. The command we have from God is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. And not just with any kind of love. We've got to love with another love. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And how does Jesus love? Well, now you understand why the series could take the rest of my life. But if I'm going to pick one word to distinguish another love from all the other love, it's this word. Another love is unconditional. Jesus' love was another kind of love because he did not love selectively or discriminately, or to put it another way, he did not love based on the return he might get for the investment. And that is so different. Most of the loving that we do is because of love. There is something about you. I deem lovely. There's something about investing in you that brings me joy and happiness. I'm getting something from this investment because of you. But what Jesus did was not because of love. He did in spite of love. And you don't see much of that. Most of the loving that goes on in the world rarely goes beyond minimum daily requirements. Because love is just too expensive to waste on bad investments. And so we give a lot of thought to who We will love. Because love is costly. Love takes something from me. And so I try to spend my love shrewdly. You do too. And you need to know. Jesus is decidedly unimpressed with this kind of loving. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32, he said, If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those 
who love them. You want to hear a convicting statement? Try this. Many Christians never practice loving beyond what a person without the Holy Spirit can do. Let that sink in. That many people claiming to follow Jesus rarely practice a loving that goes beyond what someone who doesn't even have the Holy Spirit can do. I'm wondering what qualifiers in the past you and I have put on our love. Some of us, we, we have put ethnic qualifiers on our loving. For others of us, it might have been theological boundaries. And probably for all of us, we have put up some security walls to keep from getting hurt. And particularly if we have been hurt, we were very, very careful in the future, especially with that person about investing love again. Love one another, he said. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Do you realize that he said that just after he had washed Judas' feet? Fully aware that Judas was complicit In his murder. And even if Judas had no appreciation for this act of love. And by the way, scripture gives no indication that Judas was even remotely affected by what Jesus did. But that's okay. Because Jesus knew his father in heaven would be. It wasn't, in Jesus' eyes, a wasted investment to love Judas because he was offering his love to God. He wasn't going to be one of these people that just reacts to other people with his love, but he was going to reflect to other people the love of God. Because God doesn't love people because of who they are, but because of who he is. The Bible says he drenches everybody with his rain, the just and the unjust, regardless of how lovely they are. Only another love could explain the cross. Again from the message, Romans 5, 8. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. You see, I'm going to take a big burden off your shoulders right now. Isn't it exhausting trying to figure out who to love? Isn't it just tiring trying to decide if that person would be a good investment Or if this person would bring a good return. 
See, Jesus just takes that burden off. He says, love everybody. Just love everybody. No discriminating. And it's actually kind of liberating. Just to love people without conditions. Even if they don't appreciate it. Because we know the Father in heaven does. And when we love without conditions, we model our convictions. So I remember, for example, years ago, my wife and I lived next door to a couple that both flew for the Air Force. And we tried to share faith with them, had them in our home, invited them to church and to Bible studies. Uh, They never really went very far down that road. But the husband liked to play golf. And so one time he invited me to play golf with him at the Air Force base. And he brought a single friend who uh, wasn't a believer at all. I was playing pretty well that day. I was one over after five holes on the sixth tee. I'm over my ball, and this guy says, Hey, Rick, what do you think about marriage and divorce? I promptly hooked my ball out of bounds and made a double. (laughs) And I began, his name was Fred, to talk with Fred and invite Fred to our home and to come to church and to come to Bible studies. And he started coming some. He was was seeking something in his life because his life had a big hole in it. And he was getting closer and closer to accepting Christ. And the Air Force was going to send him overseas for three months to Europe. And so when he got back from his deployment, I called him up. Hi, Fred. And before I could say another word, he said, let me just tell you right now. I don't believe all that blankety-blank stuff you and your blankety-blank church taught me about blankety-blank this and blankety-blank that, blankety-blanket. And I knew exactly what had happened. That while he was in Europe... He drifted back into a life of immorality and debauchery. And the guilt he was feeling was so great, the only way he knew to cope with it was just to try to throw everything away. And I said, well, Fred, okay. When are we going to play golf? And I'll never forget, he said, you still want to play golf with me? And I said, Fred, we're still friends, aren't we? Even if you never come to my church. And Fred did not know what to do with that. He assumed, like everyone else, that I would only invest in him if I got what I wanted back. One week later, we played golf. One month later, I baptized him into Christ. Because you see, another love, and here's the last thing Jesus says, it's irrefutable. What do I mean? He says, by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Now think about this. Through the centuries, how has we tried to communicate that we're Jesus' disciples? We've put on special collars. We've... Worn jewelry. We've put bumper stickers on our cars. And the way some of us drive, I wish we would stop doing that. (laughs) We have fought over the purity of our doctrine. And we've sought to practice a distinct purity in our lifestyle. And that's a good thing. We have tried to use educational And political institutions 
to bring about the agenda of the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus didn't tell us that any of those things would make us known as his disciples. Later that same night in John 17, he prayed this. I pray that they, his disciples, will all be one, just as you and I are one, Father, as you are in me and I'm in you. May they be in us so the world will believe you sent me. Somehow, Jesus believed that the way we connect to each other communicates to the world who he is like nothing else. Or let me put it this way, and and I know some of you are not going to like this, particularly in an election year where so many Christians are going to believe that if we just get the right people in political positions of power, we can bring about the mission of Jesus. Now, you're not going to like this, but listen to me. When we try to leverage anything but love, we lose all our leverage. Period. Jesus doesn't expect the world to recognize our doctrinal correctness or our, even our moral holiness. He knew they would recognize the stunning uniqueness of another love. Because this world is dying from relational viruses and it notices relational health. For example, just recently this past spring in New York City, a young basketball player named Jeremy Lin for a few weeks caught the whole nation by storm. He was one of these undrafted players that suddenly showed up and played a starring role for the New York Knicks, and everybody was talking about uh, Jeremy Lin. And there was a, a, a guy for ESPN that wrote headlines. He worked for him for five years, never any issues, and he wrote a headline about Jeremy Lin. And he used a word that some people think is a derogatory description of Asians. And he was immediately fired. His name was Anthony Federico. See, Anthony is a a Christian. Jeremy Lin is a Christian. Anthony, in that picture, had been in Haiti where he had been working in the name of Christ at a dental clinic for people after the earthquake. But he got fired and he got hammered by media all over the country. And someone told Jeremy Lin, and Jeremy Lin found out that Anthony was a Christian too. So Jeremy Lin reaches out to Anthony Federico, and they meet for lunch in Manhattan. And Anthony had this to say. We met at a restaurant in Manhattan. We had lunch, talked for an hour. We barely talked about the headline because he knew, and believe me, there was no intent behind it. He was on my side. It was so great to have his support. He felt badly about what happened, the way I was being destroyed in the media. He reached out to me, and I'll never forget how gracious he was. And we discussed our personal faith stories and how our identity as Christians defines us, not our occupations or circumstances. And I told him about my personal walk with Jesus, and he told me about his. We talked about God's 
unfathomable mercy. We talked about the Knicks and their playoff hopes. We laughed a lot. And those words went into newspapers and news sources across the country. And the media didn't quite know what to do with it. Except to say, well, this is strange. Two people who refuse to have any ill will for each other. Do you know that a lot of times the world judges us, the church, and they have no business doing it because they don't know what they're talking about. They have no clue what pure doctrine is. They have no understanding what God's call to holiness is. But Jesus gave the world the right to judge us on this. Do we love each other? The world is simply exercising the prerogative given by Jesus to determine if we're his disciples based on our observable love for each other. Understand, please take this home. The way we another is how we proclaim to the world that Jesus is a Savior like no other. So how are we doing? And how can we do better? Well, we're going to spend some time this summer talking about that. But I'm going to tell you the most important thing right now. Later in that same prayer, Jesus said, verse 26, I've revealed you to them and will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Now let that sink in. I have revealed you to them. So that your love for me will be in them. What? Jesus, are you saying God would love me as much as he loves you? You'll never love like Jesus until you believe that God loves you like he loves Jesus. That's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard for people that mainly practice because of love to believe. I mean, I can see why God loves Jesus, because of his holiness, because of his purity, because of his goodness, because of his obedience. I can see why God loves Jesus. Listen again to what he said. I have revealed them to you so that your love for me will be in them. You must let God love you with another love. The greatest truth of the universe is the hardest to believe that there's a love that never fails, that never gives up on me. Since nobody else has ever loved us without finding something lovely in us, 
It's just hard to think of love any other way. But I want you to try for a second. What if another love existed? What if there was a love that was not created by your worth, but actually created your worth? What if there was a love that wasn't based on your performance, but simply on your existence? You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 4? Even before he made the world, God loved us. And on a cross, the cross that Jesus would go to just hours after he said this, God proved his love is tenacious, it's not tenuous. Why do we struggle to love one another? Simple. It's hard to pour into others when your love tank is always empty. And you're going to experience love droughts until you let yourself just get drenched by the truth that God is just crazy about you. Philip Yancey wrote one of the greatest books of the last generation, Disappointment with God. He worked on it for a long time. He was going to a conference, and uh, there was a five-hour delay in his flight, and there was a woman he met at the airport that was going to the same conference, and so they had a long time to talk. And so he started talking about all the research he had done on this book. And he was kind of in a melancholy spirit because he's done all this research about people disappointing with God, people struggling with doubts, people who had prayers that never seemed to get answered, people who live with suffering and with pain. And he's working through all this. And finally, this woman says to him, Philip, do you ever just let God love you? It's pretty important. I think. And he said a light just went on. That for all of his intense study in deep theological investigation, he's got this gaping hole that is the most important thing to believe. That God just absolutely loves us. This week I had a thought I never had before. I've read all my life how John in his gospel says the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I was like, well, that's John. Never dawned on me. think, well, that could be me. I'm going to start calling myself that. <laughs> I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. You just need to know that. You can call me that if you want to. <laughs> I am the disciple who Jesus loves. And only then can I live out Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 as dearly loved children. Live a life of love. Before we can love one another, we have to receive another love. 
And so I'm going to ask you to take a moment and just abide in love of God. Would you bow your heads for a second? And I'm going to read a scripture you've heard all your life over you. And would you just let this word of God drench you for the next few moments? And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you just for a few moments be still and listen to God tell you he loves you. How wonderful you are to me. No father could ever be more proud than I am of you. I knew you and loved you before you were ever even born. I chose to adopt you as my child. And I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. I have called you to a life of purpose. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of my will and grace. I know you don't always think about me, but I never stop thinking about you. You are always on my mind and in my heart. And I want you to fully grasp how much I treasure and value you. I love you completely. There is nothing that you could do or say that will make me love you any more than right now. And there is nothing that you can do or say that will make me love you any less than right now. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I love you.